Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Got that first part? Here's the part two. I'm happy to hear, Nick, that that's your favorite niggin. Um, it was, uh, I felt it was apropos since we have entered the three weeks. It is Imesh Kachech, and um, on Tisha B'Av, we, we um, mourn for tragedies of the past, I guess of, of the moment as well. And so Imesh Kachech is on my mind that we should never forget. Um, we should never forget. Oh, thank you, Toby. Um, we, have, we have, thankfully, I think the deepest, the deepest Torah we have are the thousands of Nagunim we've inherited from our ancestors. Those who might have spoken a different language or, um, you know, had a very different way of conversing than we do. And yet through the power of the melody, um, I think every Jew can connect. And that's one of my dreams of the messianic eras that every Jew can be connected through Nigun, um, even, even as our values are, are diverse. So friends, thank you for being here for kindness class number 14, Dibor Yafeh, speaking kindly as always. I hope to share a little Torah and then I hope to open the conversation with you. So um, let's start with a little poll about how you think about Dibor Yafeh in your own life. How do I relate to speech? Number one, I hate politically correct garbage. I just speak the truth as I see it. Number two, I try to speak carefully, but slip sometimes. Option three, I'm deeply intentional and sensitive with speech as a listener and speaker. <laughs> You'll notice my change of tone of voice as I gave you the options. <laughs> okay, uh, give you another moment here. All right, let's see our results. I think people had enough time. Nobody here says, I hate politically correct garbage. I just speak the truth as I see it. 89% say I try to speak carefully, but slip sometimes. And 11% say I'm deeply intentional and sensitive of speech as a listener and as a speaker. Great. So this is one of these sessions that is just basic, simple truths 
we all learn since we were two years old to speak nicely to others, right? And so there's no rocket science here to the ideas. And yet it's a meditation on, on something that each of us can be potentially more um, intentional about um, and use our voices for, for all the power of our voices for good. So here we go. Virtually every child is taught not to hit other children and to use kind words such as please and thank you. But few are taught the nuances of the full power of speech to destroy or redeem others, to tear down or build up. For the Talmudic rabbis, divine speech has enormous power. In the creation story, we see God speak and a world created. And so they teach in Pirkei Avot, the world was created through 10 statements. Ah, I just learned this with my daughter uh, last night. The world was created through 10 statements. What do you mean? God should have just acted, create the world. Why create the world through speech? Human speech is to be used cautiously and creatively modeled off of this divine speech. You want to find the highest discourse in the world? Go on Twitter. No, no, no. You want to beat Twitter? You want to beat Twitter? Look at the comment section on op-eds. The comment section of, oh, you fool, you don't know anything you're talking about. The comment section of op-eds is the lowest form of human discourse in the history of the world. Um, occasionally, you'll find a thoughtful comment, but generally, it's just people with a lot of rage um, and posting anonymously. In any case, we're here to have a different conversation. Some rabbis teach that the above insight regarding creation was not merely a historical phenomenon of how God created the world, but is still in place today. Rav Chaim of Volazhin taught some, each one of us, each one of God's statements during creation is the soul and life force of the thing that was created with it. Get it? The speech infuses life force into the creation. All the various species or types of that thing, as well as the mazalot, the constellation, right? When you say mazel tov, you're not saying congratulations. You're saying your, your constellations should be for the good, right? Mazel is constellations. So you're saying, it's, it's a little bit saying like, you, you should be lucky. I mean, we, I mean, Jews don't believe so much in luck, right? But I mean, I mean, Jews believe in all kinds of things. So, <laughs> but mazel tov, we're saying essentially the arrangement of the cosmos that lead to your fortune should be aligned well for you. That's what we're saying with mazel tov. And angels in charge of that thing are also brought into being through these statements, right? Speech is constructive. From, from the moment of the original creation throughout all of history until the present time, the word of God keeps all things in existence every moment and in all different situations. We are not sensitive to this phenomenon since we only see with physical eyes. Wow. Wow. Okay. So Unclus, uh, Unclus was is the, perhaps the most famous convert um, in, um, in Jewish history. That picture is not of Unclus. <laughs> that is of Adam, of course. Um, Adam was probably brown skin or black skin. He probably didn't have curly orange hair, but who knows? Some artists made this, this, this cool looking Adam with some fruit above his head. Most art thinks the fruit was an apple they ate. It was probably not an apple. Christian mythology talks about apples. Um, but whatever this, um, from this etadat uh, tovera, this pre, this fruit that they ate from, in any case, Anglis, this famous convert who translated the whole Torah, the great Talmudic era translator and commentator translated the culmination of the creation of man episode. He translated, 
literally meaning man becomes a living being. He translates that verse in the creation story as man became a speaking being. Humans are beings of mind, body, and soul. But for Onkelis, it is our capacity for speech, which was so unique to our creation. Judaism is a very speech-oriented religion, as there is such heavy emphasis upon prayer, Torah study, and the ethics of speech. Rashi, following Onkelis' translation, emphasizes that the most significant difference between humans and other creatures is the power of speech. Now, we're not going to um, take a, a big tangent right now on, um, on animal, speech, uh, animal speech. We know animals have the capacity for speech. We know some of it is very limited and some of it is very um, uh, extensive and comprehensive um, and sophisticated. Nonetheless, no one has ever argued that their capacity for speech in any way, um, you know, lines up with ours. If you've ever been to an academic conference or read a dissertation, by the way, an academic conference is probably the most boring activity you could ever do in your life. Aglaia, no offense, no offense. Academic conferences, you know what they do? Here's how most- None taken, none taken. Okay, okay right. absolutely none taken. <laughs> so, um, so anyways, um, but if you go to these conferences or you read academic footnotes, you realize- the enormous capacity for speech. Or if you take a spiritual approach, if you go to hospice and you look at a hospice worker or a counselor and you see how people use their speech to heal, the capacity for humans and speech is just, is just remarkable. Um, the Maharal expands on this idea and he writes that the essence of a human is not found in body or in soul, but in our power of speech. Since it's a place where body and soul meet, get it? Body, soul, they meet in the capacity for speech, according to the Maharal. For the Maharal, like Rashi and Unkelis, it is the capacity, uh, the statement made my day, great. It is the capacity for speech that makes us uniquely human. Angels have souls, but no bodies. Animals have bodies, but lower souls. But humans through speech play a unique role in the divine plan for creation, merging body and soul. Human speech, indeed a gift from the divine, has enormous power. We know, for example, that the spiritual union of a husband and wife or any two getting married is not completed until the verbal recitation of the Sheva Brachot, the seven blessings under the Chuppah. The Mishnah states over there in Tractate Kala, very few have studied Tractate Kala, a bride is forbidden to her husband until the Sheva Brachot are recited. Get it? So your... Um, um, that is um, that the wedding is actualized through speech and through a speech act connected to the ring. Um, uh, if I were performing a gay wedding, um, I would also engage the Sheva Brachot and would think of the Sheva Brachot also as the actualization of, of this moment. Also, consider the power of Nadarim, verbal vows. The Torah teaches in Numbers... Moshe spoke to the heads of the tribes of B'nai Israel, saying, this is the thing that God has commanded. If a man takes a vow to God or swears an oath to establish a prohibition upon himself, he shall not violate his word. According to whatever comes from his mouth, shall he do. So, um, so, um, so I don't say, uh, gee, damn it, gee, damn it. But a lot of people think in public that that is what it means to curse, to swear, in the name of God falsely, you know, gosh, damn it. You know, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, I don't say that, but people say, it. but that's not actually not it. Um, 
But what it really is, is making a vow, which is bound up with a divine commitment. And through the power of speech, one becomes obligated to such a practice. There's a lot to say about, about the power of a vow. In fact, um, uh, in fact, there's too much to say about it. So I'm not going to say very much. Similarly, Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, wisely advised in Kohelet, in Ecclesiastes, it is better not to take a vow than to take a vow and not fulfill it, right? Today, we love commitments. Oh, you're my best friend. Oh, I'm on a six-month diet, right? Oh, I'm signing a lease. I'm signing a work contract. I'm getting married. But we know these commitments are very loose. They're very loose. I mean, the transience of the workplace, you know, relationships that come and go, um, commitments, diets. Don't even talk to me about diets. Apparently, diets never work. I know, I know we all love to try, including myself. But diets are are empirically proven to be uh, ineffective. Lifestyle changes. Now, that's something that works, a lifestyle change, as opposed to a temporary diet. But so anyways, the, the, the ned there, the rabbis are very opposed to us making, making verbal commitments um, unless we are very clear. So we don't say to, we don't just lose, we're, we're, we're taught to distrust people and say, oh, I promise you, tomorrow I got it. I, I commit to you, I'll never do it again, right? We're, we're taught to be very skeptical of that, right? Of making such speech commitments in, in a sense. Um, we reserve that for things like I'm marrying you. That means I won't have sex with another person while I'm married to you, right? That's like a serious commitment to make. Like, you know, like I swear on the constitution uh, that I, that I'm not going to lie in court, right? Um, or swear on the Bible, whatever, whatever, you know, like we make very serious commitments and that's like a very different moment than a loose commitment. Okay. So these are, Jew there's many Jewish laws around Shmirat HaLashon, guarding the tongue as well. For example, we must avoid lashon hara, evil speech, and rechilut, tail-bearing, as hard as, those, as that is. The Jerusalem Talmud couldn't make more clear how serious this is in rabbinic thought. It says over here in the Jerusalem Talmud, just a reminder, there's the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud, very different works, very different results, but they're both fascinating. There are four transgressions for which one pays in this world and in the next. Idolatry, sexual immorality, and murder. And Lashon Hara is equivalent in severity to them all. Now, that's kind of scary because all of us fall short on a daily basis in how we use our speech. So I don't think they mean like a minor slip that we catch. I think they mean that one who lives a life with very loose speech, constantly putting people down, constantly de de destroying people with gossip, constantly using social media to attack people and, and they, they, they hate, uh, people who essentially use speech to tear down. Psalms advises us that guarding our tongue from evil speech is the pathway toward life and blessing. It says here in Tehillim, in Psalms, who is the, man, who is the person who desires life, who loves days of seeing good? If this is what you desire, guard your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. The Rambam, Maimonides, teaches about the damage of speech that causes shame or pain to another. This is from the this is from the Sefer Hamitzvot. Ah, so to remind us, the Rambam writes the Mor Nevuchim, the Guide for the Perplexed. That's his philosophy work. He writes his commentary on the Mishnah. That's very important. And he writes his Yara Chazaka, or his Mishnah Torah, which is Book of Laws. But less known than those three is his Sefer Hamitzvot. Here, where he is, he is giving his Tariyag Hamitzvot. He's doing something very radical. Because what did traditionalists believe? Mitzvot are about obedience to God. 
What did the Rambam believe as a rationalist? No, mitzvot have a purpose. Each mitzvah we do, there is a good we are trying to achieve. This is not about divine obedience, right? This is about trying to actualize a certain good. And so we say for a mitzvot, he lists the 613 biblical mitzvot and explains the moral and intellectual reasons for them. So he explains here, we are instructed not to engage in onat devarim, causing emotional distress to each other with our words. This includes state statements that cause another person pain, anger, anger, or embarrassment. The source is in the Torah in Vayikra, do not aggrieve your fellow and you shall fear your God. The Talmud tells us that the verse is referring to causing emotional distress with our words. Okay, so we might have said, I didn't harm anybody. I didn't steal their stuff. I didn't hit them. Uh-uh, verbal abuse is real. Verbal abuse is real, right? Verbal oppression is real. Um, violence through speech is real. But in addition to avoiding inappropriate speech, what about actively thinking about kind speech? Here we want to focus low, less on the low tasse, things we shouldn't do, of which there's an infinite list, but on the positive side. The Shem Mishmuel teaches, according to Rabbeinu Yonah, if one guards their tongue and is careful about what they say, then their mouth is considered to be a holy vessel. Think about that, a holy vessel on par with the vessels used in the Mikdash, in the temple. Just like a holy vessel confers holiness upon whatever non-holy item is placed in it, so too all words that are issued from such a mouth are holy. Wow, how cool is that, right? That we have a temple and we have these vessels in this Beit HaMikdash, and these are to contain holy things, right? So too, our mouth can be a holy place, a holy place for what we eat, for what we speak, right? A place that holds, um, a place that holds our body. We think of what holding our body is like our feet, right? Our feet are like our foundation on the earth. But think of it as like our mouth holding up our body, our mouth holding up our soul, like this holy vessel that's containing the rest of our being. It is so easy to see the negative in everything and in everyone around us. Our brains almost seem hardwired to focus on problems and to think critically about everything and everyone. Rabbeinu Yonah further taught, however, that a righteous person will work to see the positive in everything. One of my friends here calls this a bullish market. And amongst upright people, amongst upright people, ah, so here we're quoting the Rabbeinu Yonah, and amongst upright people, one can find acceptance because a righteous person covers over people's shortcomings and always praises whatever is deserving of praise. It is related that once a wise person and another individual were walking together when they came across a carcass. The latter commented, how disgusting is this carcass? The wise person countered, how white are its teeth? <laughs> Isn't that a cool Rebeno Yonah? Um, by the way, I would love some etza. I would love some advice in our in our conversation. When I'm jogging and I pass a dead animal, I um, I make a little shriek, um, a little seven year old girl shriek, um, and then I uh, and then I say a bracha, and and and, and I'm saying the wrong bracha. I'm saying Baruch Dayan Amet, blessed is the true judge, which you say when you hear that a human being has died. 
And I, I want to say something because I don't think we can imp- encounter any death and be unshaken. You, you, you pass a death. I don't care. A bird flies in your window. You know, you pass a, a dead squirrel or bunny on the sidewalk. I think we could say something. We should pause for. But I don't want to say the same thing that I say when a human dies, because I think there's a wall between animal dignity and human dignity. It may be a porous wall. It may be a tall wall. I'm not sure. But I want to say something. So maybe you have an idea of something I can say in Hebrew or English when I pass. For example, when I hear an ambulance or um, or a fire truck or a police car, um, me and my kids, we say, Baruch Rofei Cholim, blessed is the, um, is the healer of the sick. As if to like say a blessing that like, oh, you nurses, you, you know, you, um, you uh, firefighters, you uh, police, you should be blessed to, to bring healing to where you're going. So we say that because we don't think we should hear a siren and say nothing. We should be re- spiritually responsive to the moment. Yeah, Aglaya. So Baruch Dayan HaEmet. Um, no, what I mean, what I'm meaning is you could translate it when you say it for the animal into English because it's not exactly the same thing. Uh, okay, uh, so uh, if, uh, okay, okay, I'm speaking from the linguistic term. Okay, uh, uh, ignore me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I love the power of English prayer, but for me, like, uh, and I wonder if there's other heroes like this. My neshama just relates very differently to Hebrew than English. If I read the Psalms in English, I'd be like, like, what is this Christian teaching? If I read it in English, you know, <laughs> if I read the Psalms in Hebrew, I'd be like, oh, David Amalek is wakening the Abishur. You know, it's like, it's a very different experience for me to, to pray in Hebrew than English. Yeah. Um, so, so I, so I, but I, I don't want to put down English prayer because of course God hears all prayers. Um, so you, you know you can you can pray in Finnish. Is, is Finnish a language or Finlandish? What do you call Finnish? I you, think what, it's what Finnish. In Finland, huh? Finnish. Finnish. Okay. Finnish. Well. okay. You can pray in. God even hears Finnish. I don't want to offend any Finnish people here. God can even hear Finnish. <laughs> well, I was just thinking it just changes it a little bit though, so it's not exactly the same though, but it is. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Great. So how can we get there? How can we achieve this goal? For starters, we are implored to constantly remember one of the most central teachings of Jewish ethics. And this is actually um, our focus, I believe, next week. And you shall love your fellow as you love yourself. I am God. This is taught to be central principle of the Torah. Um, So this is uh, as Rabbi Akiva teaches. Similarly, the Talmud tells a fascinating story here in, um, which is um, in, Tractate Shabbat, Shalom Sesame. The story is told of a Gentile who approached Shammai. He said to him, convert me on the condition you teach me the entire Torah where I stand on a foot, one foot. Shammai pushed him aside with a building beam he had in his hand. The Gentile came before Hillel and Hillel converted him. Hillel instructed him, what is, what is despised by you? Do not do to another. This is the entire Torah. The rest is explanation. Now go and study. And so we see here, um, once again, well, there's a lot to say here about conversion, but also um, when we get to the essence of what Torah is about and, and treating others well. The Sefer Achinuch directly connects the above teaching to how we use our speech. Um, and uh, in Mitzvah 243, perhaps before seeing the good in all, though, we'll need to practice removing our anger and critique of all around us. The 20th century Musar teacher, Rav Wolby, who we've quoted quite a bit, suggested the following formula towards achieving this goal. He wrote, we will train ourselves to be patient. We will fix a specific amount of time each day. 
for example, approximately 15 minutes, in which we will strive to bear with patience all that we see and hear, even when things may be upsetting to us, and even if they are hurtful to us, without losing our composure at all. In cases where it's necessary or, or obligatory to react, we will do so with measured, calm words without becoming overly emotional. Um, I think I shared this last week that my five-year-old daughter put me into spiritual paralysis before sleep by asking me, Abba, is it better for me at camp to get the sticker of kindness or the sticker of patience? And I said, oh, you just kept me up all night with your question. <laughs> it is instructive to note that Rav Volpe stresses the importance of improving our behavior towards others with small steps, right? Small steps. An all or nothing approach. I'm going to be the kindest person or not at all. But to changing our behavior is not only not necessary, but usually never works. A healthy approach by which we can achieve our goal is to begin with a mere 15 minutes a day, increasing that time frame steadily. Imagine if just like we had a 20-minute exercise routine or we had an investment strategy for the week, if we had a 20-minute character development strategy. Ah, here's my strategy to cultivate my kindness or my patience or to restrain my anger today. We can think more carefully about how we use our speech with others at home, socially, at work, in stores, and of course, on social media. We should create a, pl a plan each day for how we'll speak in ways that help others, comfort others, empower others, and bring dignity to others. Okay, we're moving towards a conclusion, but the contemporary author and educator, Dasi Berkowitz, who we re recently had at EBM, um, and she is, I don't normally share who one is married to, but um, you may know her from this work. You may also know her husband because he now is the new um, um, director or president of Pardes in Jerusalem. His name is Rabbi Leon Morris. Even though Pardes is pluralistic or non-denominational, it is normally associated with modern Orthodox educators. But Rabbi Leon Morris is a reform-ordained rabbi on the traditional side, to be sure. And his wife write, wrote this cool book called Becoming a Soulful Parent. And she tears, shares an important teaching from the Sfat Emet about how we experience our voices and the voices of others. I could have just quoted the Sfat Emet, but I think she unpacks it really well. So I want to use her words from this cool book that I recently read. If you're ever in the VBM office and you want a copy of her book, we will give you one for free. There's a teaching by the Sfat Emet, a Hasidic master from the 19th century, on the difference between speech, dibor, and voice, kol. With speech, we can express ideas, feelings, and practical communication. We say, well done to a colleague, and I love you to our children. We also say, say firm words such as no, not now, when we want to set a boundary. Speech is important. It allows us to communicate. It's efficient, but it can also be insufficient. Words alone cannot convey the fullness of what we want to express. Then there is call, the voice that comes in. Speech is generic, but each person's voice is unique. If I close my eyes, I can hear my grandmother's voice in its tone and sing-songy lilt. What is lilt? Is that a mistake or is, is lilt a word? It is a word. It is a word. Mm -hmm. what, is lilt, what does lilt mean? Okay, it's a way that, um, well, just former singer here, okay, though, it's um, a pitch modulation. Mm. Okay, if that makes sense. Is that making sense to everyone? Yeah. The way that you are actually changing your pitch. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Thank you. Good. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, good. I've never, I've never heard that word. I mean, obviously, I, I read it the first time I read this book, 
um, and when I put it in here, but I guess I didn't uh, look it up. As, anyway, she continues. I could hear my grandmother's voice, its tone and sing-songy lilt. I could hear the voice of my younger daughter when she calls Ima, mommy, amid throngs of other children. Her voice is immediately recognizable. It's just her. Our voice, says the Sfat Emet, and the voice of those we love, is more than a thing to be cherished. It is redemptive. Only one voice sounds just like yours. Only one voice can sing your unique song. We can reflect not only on our Dibor, the words we say and how we say them, but also on our call, the unique authenticity that we bring to the speech that we articulate. Friends, let us use both our Dibor and our call, our power of speech and our unique voice to bring our inner world into the outer world to build up others and spread kindness. I would love to hear from you. <clears throat> Hi, Aglaia. Hi. Okay. Um, this is not exactly a happy story. So if it upsets anyone, I'm really sorry about that though. But um, you're talking about the dieting and how dieting doesn't work and everything. Uh, yeah. Um, let's, the fastest way to get this out of here is that um, it started when I was eight and it didn't stop until I was um, well into my 20s and everything. Um, officially, um, I didn't have one particular disorder, though. I've switched back and forth between disorders. Now, I tried to actually I remember when I was in college, though, the way that I tried to keep myself on the um, instead of the cycle of starving, then binging and purging, then binging and keep gaining weight and losing weight and everything like that, though, um, was a lot of negative self-talk. So I don't know if there's, if, yeah, but a lot of negative self-talk can do yep. that. So, yep. yeah. Yep. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I probably should have given a trigger alert, even though most people don't do it when dieting conversation, but dieting really is a trigger mm -hmm. for many people because of eating disorders or because of and just enormous anxiety around body image, uh, body weight, and the like. Um, and it's um, and it's it's never been more intense in the history of the world than it is here in 2022 um, for men and for women, obviously non-binary folks as well, um, and um, all the more so for women. But I did recently see a study that it's actually relatively equal. We would think women suffer yeah. from this more because of uh, the, how the media portrays women constantly, but actually it, it appears that men suffer uh, just about equally oh, around around uh, um, around this around this issue. I actually had a stat. Maybe I'll include it in a future session around uh, this philosophical conversation around body mortal body uh, mortalization, uh, mutilation. Excuse me, body mutilation and and the extent of um, of what that can ultimately look like. And yeah, Aglaia is correct that um, the, uh, uh, obviously that. Um, this negative speech and how it's connected with with this process as well, and how damaging that could be. So thank you, thank you for sharing that. Let's go to Lauren and then Eileen. Not only tune the voice, but I found language is really interesting. Um, English is very easy to be polite in. Try Hebrew; it's much, much more difficult. When I'd be on the bus, first of all, Israelis tend not to be, they're, they're very direct. But I would say, Adoni, Nala, Tate, la Shevet, and I get a blank stare. And I try French and I try English. And it's just, 
some languages lend themselves more to being um, extremely polite. I think politeness is, is extremely, extremely important. Yeah. And you can really, really hurt a person badly by being rude. Thank you, thank you, Lauren. Um, and just a basic reminder that's so helpful um, just to think about just basic, basic, um, basic respect and politeness. I noticed, I noticed this, I was in the grocery store on Sunday and a man named Muhammad was uh, bagging my groceries. And I noticed myself studying him because in this area, we've received a lot of refugees from um, Afghanistan. Um, obviously Syria prior to that. Um, and I, cause I noticed he didn't speak a word of English. So I gathered that he was here very recently and also from his, his body language, his demeanor, it, it was, it was very clear, but I noticed that it, it took me about 30 seconds of kind of studying him before I realized I hadn't said anything to him. Right. And, um, sometimes, sometimes this rudeness and politeness is about what we're saying, but sometimes even the absence of speech, like, um, you know, does this guy think I'm judging him? Does this guy think I'm, you know, how, how I'm relating to him? And you're right. And in Israel, it's a very different relationship. And I do want to say, just to play devil's advocate a little bit, I have met many people in American culture who I think use politeness to kind of reveal their genuine kind nature. And I think I've met others who kind of use it to mask um, kind of a little bit of an apathy or mean nature. They're like yeah, smiling. Yes, thank you. But really, they don't want to do um, anything nice at all, like the politeness. Been to kind of, Louisiana. <laughs> okay. Yes, and so yeah, there are some cultures that are a little bit passively aggressive, where you speak nicely, but you're actually not interested in helping anyone. And when we say Israelis are sabras, what we mean is obviously prickly on the outside, sweet on the inside. They're not going to be very polite or nice on the outside. They're going to cut you in line. They're going to bump you on the way to the bus. They're not going to use very nice words. But in theory, they're going to be there if your car breaks down. Now we may have different, you know, experiences with that, this or that, and so. I just, I, I want to affirm that politeness is great and rudeness is bad and kind of, you know, raise the question of like, is our politeness, at, you know, uh, accompanied with a behavior that matches the words or is the politeness kind of masking an apathy, kind of we're using the politeness to as a, as a, an escape from actual ha having to be helpful. Yes, Eileen, Eileen, and then Toby and Hannah. Um, it seems to me in terms of language and speaking, importance of how we talk to our children cannot be overemphasized, both in the words we use and in the tonality. Great, great. Yeah, and I would say there, what Eileen is sharing is that it's not only in us modeling that, um, and, and yeah, and the tonality as well, so so powerfully said. But also, it is an art and skill. We're not saying like, oh, here's a book to pick up with the hundred phrases we should use every day, right? Actually, there's an art and skill to using speech to actually, in a way, lift up others. It's not, there's no magical words, right? That goes back to the Sfat Emet of Kol versus Dibor. Yes, there are nice words to say, but how do we deliver them in the right way, at the right time, in a way that's that's conjunctive rather than disjunctive. That's to say connecting us rather than disconnecting us. Um, and, and that is something that emotional intelligence is something our children can learn from us modeling that. So thank you, thank you for that. Um, yes, and by the way, uh, it, it goes without saying that going with kind speech of course is kind listening. 
empathic listening is one of the great lost arts. I mean, not lost like it was once there, but lost in that, like, we wish it was there, right? Um, but, right, the empathic listening, even more powerful than powerful speaking, is just the ability for to make somebody truly feel heard. And that is incredibly um, hard to do, um, very hard to do. Okay, Toby. Hi, Toby. Good morning. Um, I have a, some thoughts about uh, having to relay bad uh, news to someone. And in my job as a criminal defense attorney, a lot of times I would have to not only deliver bad news to my client, but to their families who a lot of times had no clue about what their son or daughter was facing as far as the consequences for the behavior they had been accused of. And um, I learned a couple of tough lessons um, in trying to explain those things to the family and spent a lot of um, sleepless nights like you were talking about, I think, about uh, when people pose questions or pose, um, you have to balance. They need to hear this information because it's important in making a decision for their loved one and helping their loved one to make a decision about what to do. But how uh, the, the way that this information is communicated to these people is really critical. Yeah. And, and nobody, I wasn't aware that there was a way to learn um, a sensitive way of, uh, you know, I read all the books and stuff and I didn't find them very helpful in helping me to deliver bad news and to, to relay the fact that I was not only sympathetic, empathetic and um, wanted them to be heard. Yeah. Anybody have any helpful hints on that score? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, love that. I would love, I would love, uh, when we open up the conversation to hear folks respond to that, I'll just share one or two things. Uh, in addition to that, I think in addition to the, the legal field, we know medical providers also struggle with this. Um, obviously, to tell someone they have cancer, to tell someone they have six months left. Um, um, and oftentimes, doctors are critiqued for being particularly cold in their delivery and not having good bedside manners. They don't teach it so much in medical school um, or train it extensively enough. Obviously, not in, in, in law school either uh, so much. <laughs> yeah, pastoral skills, right? Um, and so, and, and like the people in charge of the billing department want to, you to see as many patients as you can, as fast as you can, right? Not to mention the and, and, and lawyers as well, charging by the 10, 15 minutes, whatever the case is. And so take someone like my wife, who's a nurse practitioner in, in a women's health, in a, in an OBGYN clinic. And she's got to be like, all right, I got 10 minutes with you. And I got to tell you, you're having a miscarriage and we need to remove the fetus. Right. But I got two minutes left. Cause I got to get to my next person. Cause someone's you know watching me on the clock. Yeah, good luck. Like, yeah, you really want to, and this might be the kind of woman who's like, all right, you know, I, you know, thought that was possible. I'm prepared. And this might be the kind of woman who's going to need an hour in the office to kind of hug someone and like, you know, think through that, you know? And so, um, uh, uh, yeah, this is, this is serious stuff. Um, you know, and, um, we've all encountered that we've all encountered medical providers who feel like they have an emotional pulse, um, and those who felt like they didn't, um, and lawyers on the, in, on the same front. And it goes beyond. And each of us has defense mechanisms. I know my first year, my first five years as a pastoral counselor, um, I had a terrible um, defense mechanism is not is not the right word. What's like it's not really a tick. 
somebody give me the right word that um, I would, when I had to say something really, share something really bad or was in a very uncomfortable situation, I would smile like a little smirk. Mm. I don't know what you call like that, um, that facial expression, but um, not because I found anything funny, but that smirk was like my, my kind of emotional overload. I would smile to kind of escape that emotional overload. Somebody give me a phrase here to describe this. A coping mechanism. It's, there's a better phrase. Um, and an, a nervous tick. Yeah. And so that, that's really horrible. And a lot of, most of us have things like that, that when we're in really uncomfortable situations, the way we speak changes, our facial expressions change, and it's something for us to, you know, think about. So yeah. Anyways, I, I, we, we'd love to hear more people's responses to Toby, but let's, let's go to Nick Hummel. Well, in response to uh, Toby, um, I'll say not only is uh, that prevalent in the, the legal field, the medical field, but also in customer service and more specifically in aviation. There's a specific, I mean, even though it's not as serious as having to tell someone you're going to jail for 25 years of your life or telling someone you have six months to live for people who are traveling, hearing the news that your luggage is delayed in the next direct flight to get your bag isn't until Saturday is almost as catastrophic. Or telling people, I'm sorry it was your fault that you woke up late and you missed your check-in, the, the check-in time for your flight and I can't do anything for you. You know, there's a certain skill set, that same skill set that you learn. Um, and so I, I do training for um, Phoenix Sky Harbor for the uh, Air Canada contractor, Swissport. And that's one of the things that I have to train on is how can you be compassionate, but also have that very blunt sort of doctor's bedside manner because out of all of my years in customer service, I've learned one, you should never lie to people. Even if it's lying to, because you think it's going to make the situation better, that never helps. But you also shouldn't get someone's hopes up. I think that's equally as bad. Great. So Nick, for yeah, me, that's, yeah, sorry, sorry. Um, so for me, what I always say is you need to be realistic. You have to say these are your options, A, B, C, and D. I understand that it's a very frustrating situation. I can't imagine how frustrated you are right now, but this is what we're able to do. I'm sorry. Yeah. And then you leave the space for the individual to feel whatever feelings they need to feel. Great. So thank you, Nick. I, that, that's really powerful to remind us of the value of truth um, amidst, um, you know, a service orientation um, and that politeness doesn't mean or bedside manner or, you know, being consoling and supportive doesn't mean hiding truth. 
uh, and you tapped into my greatest existential dilemma of, as a teenager. Just kidding, it wasn't my greatest. It was if you're an ex if you're a teenager, you have an existential dilemma like every th three seconds. Um, but it was I was I was a waiter at Ruby Tuesday. Ever been to Ruby Tuesday? I was a waiter at Ruby Tuesday, and the person ordered fish, so I brought them fish, and I brought them the fish. He said, "I ordered chicken." I said, "No, you didn't. You ordered fish." They said, no, I want the chicken. I said, look, you ordered fish. I got it right here. And Ruby Tuesday said, no, no, no. The customer's always right. I say, the, the value of customer's always right doesn't trump the value of truth. So I, so I, I, I think I had a disproportionate uh, weighing of, of moral values for the service industry. But you're right. You have to speak truth and you have to be polite. But sometimes the customer's always right. Um, you, their truth outweighs the absolute truth. So Hannah, your hand was up and then it was down. Now it's back up. So good, Hannah. Hi. Hello. Um, I like a theme I keep hearing between everyone's shares, and I'm curious about this. Also, is the um, sense that it feels like what you were saying before, Rabbi Shmuley, was that words are constructive, and um, and I guess I'm, I'm I'm getting the sense between like dieting and all this other and the way people speak to each other. It feels like if words are constructive. Of how are we to know which words to believe and which ones to not? It feels mm -hmm. like um, because a lot of the you know messaging you get from advertisements and from parents or whatever lead to negative outcomes because those words, even if they're negative, are also constructive. So that's that's what I'm thinking about. Oh, Hannah. So I want to understand a little bit more because it's such a powerful question. What I think I heard you say, but but it doesn't get to the the, the heart of it is yeah. that there's so much speech around us and how do we know which um, how do we know which to kind of buy into but I think you're saying a, a, one more layer on top of that right because um, the other layer is that because negative words are seem to be equally constructive as positive words mm -hmm. and um, so in that in those instances it's hard as a human to figure out which words are good for you. Mm -hmm. So what would be an example of like negative words that you think would be still be constructive? Like what, like, like what's an example you have in mind? Oh, um, you know, okay. I'll just use a personal example as someone who's approaching 30, I'm getting so many social media advertisements about Botox and like, oh. uh, like you could look more beautiful, like, you know, everyone's doing this. Actually, it's empowerment to take control of your image in this oh. particular way. Um, and that has outcomes. A lot of my friends have started these like micro procedures or whatever. And so that's, Ah, mm. oh, right, right. So there's like this false empowerment conversation. I don't know if, I don't know if you'd call it that, but around yeah, like, yeah. you're not enough, you can be more and be your best you can be, which is really the, the there's a kind of like an, the, the speech is like, you can be beautiful, you can be great, you can be rich, you can be everything you want to be. But the underlying foundation is you're not enough, like you're inadequate, yeah. you need to be fixed fundamentally. Right. And so yeah. how do we separate out the kind of speech that truly is empowering and beautiful and constructive versus the one that has that unhealthy foundation? Is that what you're saying? Yes. And and even parents saying you should be more like this person or you need to. Be yes. Like this. It just right. seems like negative right. words also have a positive feedback. loop. You can. Right. Yeah. But. Great. Love that. 
Okay, so um, just before we go to Rabbi Leonard, do you want to respond to that or add a new comment? Okay, so I'm going to come back to you if you're not responding. Oh, oh, oh you're on mute still anyways. Okay. Sorry about that. No, it was as not to that in particular, to an earlier comment. So if okay, you want great. to come, so back, let me come, come right back. back to you. Great, great. So okay. we'll come right back to you after, after Hannah's great point. Yeah, I think we should keep the question alive and um, for our conversation of like, like Hannah's asking a really great question. Like there's not this binary of like, here's really great, constructive, healthy speech. And here's really clearly like evil, destructive speech. There's this middle ground of stuff that feels like it's trying to be affirmative and, and constructive and, and, and helpful. And yet there's some problematic natures to what's underlying some of it. Um, and so I don't want to answer that as much as like amplify that important question for others to weigh in on. Okay, Rabbi Lerner, let's hear your response to the other thing. Okay, the, the comment about self comments, I thought was very important. How many times do we do something and we say, oh, that was stupid. Uh, uh, Those are negative self-images reinforcing in us our own self-image when we ought to be saying, I guess there's a better way to do it. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Can I just jump in really quickly? Yeah. Please. Okay. Um, all right. So speaking about, um, well, yeah, I have answers to both Toby and um, Hannah, though. So just go to Hannah first, okay? Um, speaking about um, if you get Botox, you'll be empowered and stuff like that. One thing that I did learn when I was, you know, 20 and, you know, saying, okay, my life will be so much better. Everything, it'll solve all of my problems if I get down to 104 pounds. I will be so beautiful and everything will just, anything that tells you that um, you need to change in order to be empowered, um, I treat with a lot of skepticism. Oh, I want to give a counter argument. Yes. Okay. So a respectful counter argument. No, so oh, I, go ahead. So, so I love what you said. The, mm -hmm. uh, part, um, this notion of if I need to change myself to be empowered, right? Mm -hmm. that feels problematic. But let's think of some cases where we might think of it as less problematic. Now, uh, let, me take, let me take a big yeah. one. Let's say somebody um, identifies as trans and they want to take hormones or they want to engage in a surgery to change their body, mm -hmm. right? To yeah. be empowered to their authentic self. Okay, that's one example. What about someone who was in a car accident and has a disfiguration, uh, is that the right word? And wants mm -hmm. to engage in a cosmetic surgery to fix this, uh, this, this damage. What about someone who... Um, uh, you know, has, um, well, I, this might, no, I'm not going to use that example. That's, um, <laughs> let, what, what, okay. So, so I think there's a few, what about someone who is obese, someone who is uh, obese and has medically been, uh, suggested to take all measures possible to, you know, not be perfect, but find ways to, you know, eliminate some of that weight. So I, so, so but I want to know something this, okay. Someone who's obese, who's trying to lose weight for their medical purpose, for medical purposes. I don't think of that as the same thing as Botox and, you know, it'll, you know, yeah, those are no, different. No. Yeah. Yes, you know, yeah that I is a different yeah. category. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And then also the like, um, but no, that's my point was, is that it's not going to make everything better for you. 
it. Yes. Like that's where that's where you kind of have to be skeptical yes. about and, it. And I think also that's also part of the, going to the trans conversation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of reason for depression and mental health challenges for trans folks that are socially uh, connected. But I think part of it also is this false uh, presentation that some give. Oh, once you've engaged in this hormonal treatment or the surgery, everything is good for you. You're now your perfect, authentic self. And even if it may be important for someone, and I'm not, you know, to engage in that, mm-hmm. I think we should be careful of people presenting that, like, if you're not closeted, if you've engaged in a medical intervention, everything is going to be perfect for you. Just like if you weigh 150 pounds and now you weigh 130 or 200, now you're 180, everything is going to be perfect for you. No, no technical solution, you know, solves. That's probably all how I should have, that's how I should have put it. That's actually what I meant. But that's how I should have put it. I'm really sorry. I kind of speak stupidly sometimes, but anyway, though, okay, speaking of negative self-talk. Okay. <laughs> anyway, though, but the other thing though, that I wanted to say to Toby, so I've actually been in the situation with medical having to, it wasn't, my mom's a pediatrician and one of her patients had died that summer I was working with pediatric oncology and everything. And I had to tell her, and then I actually carried that over to my teaching. Now, um, I have to get up in front of classes and show people pictures of, all, you know, horrifying, horrifying stuff. And I have to tell them, oh, yeah, all these horrifying things happen. Do you know how resistant people are to actually hearing an honest story about history? They get so upset. They get so mad. They get, you know, like, that's why I've had I've been called every name in the book. I've received threats from students. I've been stalked even by a student. It's really weird because actually the stalking incident with student, that actually happened because of anti-Semitism, but that's, you know, a different story. But anyway, but the only thing that I actually, um, what tied those two together was the day that um, I had to, you know, tell my mom her patient had died. Um, She and I had a little bit of a conversation about like how it's every single situation, it's never actually going to get better it's never going to be perfect the only thing you can do is just you know do the best you can with that particular it's like with that individual it's going to be something completely different for another individual in my classroom it's kind of the same way on that day I might uh, you know I might be feeling talking about okay why can't we have Confederate flags all over the place, even though I see them across the street, but why, why shouldn't we have Confederate flags all over the place? Yeah. I'm going to, yeah. So awesome. uh, maybe, awesome. yeah. yeah. So. Thank you. So, so um, good. So thank you, Aglaia. And I, I want to leave our last seven minutes for um, if there's some folks who haven't spoken yet, who also want to jump in and I'll just share one thought uh, prior, just how powerful role models are that shift the norms. I, I, I I grew up on the basketball court where you trash talk. And uh, just like Steve Chauvin does on the pickleball court every day, he's trash talking everyone. Not just kidding, Steve. Um, and so, um, and so we trash talk. Now I wasn't not, not in an intense way, but basically like, you know, mild put downs of how you're going to school someone on the court, whatever. And then I, I moved to Israel and I had a rabbi who used to play with us at the yeshiva. Um, and this guy, every word out of his mouth, every two seconds was a compliment to someone great shot, great. And he's, and he was doing it for the opponent side too. And I was so overwhelmed by it. And it really affected me and how I thought about like sports and how, what we're actually trying to do out there in a way it transformed my orientation of how we, how we think about that. So um, anyways, just a little side point. Yes. Hey, Eddie. 
Yeah, thank you, Rabbi. Um, uh, something that I'm often conflicted by and I, it draws up a red flag is when people uh, blur the lines of honesty and uh, kindness, where um, they'll say, I'm, I'm brutally honest. And internally, that's, that's they're more brutal than they are honest. And it ends up being something really hurtful and offensive. And I see this a lot um, with, with some folks who We'll use it as an excuse to say something really mean, like call out somebody's weight and be like, you're really big. And I'm just like, they'll like hide behind the fact and be like, I'm just being honest. Um, and I, I, I really get red flags from people who use that and take a step back and, and maybe think about the way that they're saying things to be more kind. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Beautiful. I love that. This touches upon us an earlier theme we, we were looking at of the value of Shalom over Emmet at times. Uh, peace over truth. We don't need to say everything uh, we believe. Um, there's no virtue to just pouring um, pouring our toxic thoughts upon uh, upon others, and that we should be skeptical. And that's why our tradition says that generally we shouldn't give tochacha, we shouldn't give rebuke, we shouldn't give moral correctives to others, because generally people cannot hear it and not take it. We're just, today we're pouring our moral correctives out left and right. You should be better at that. You can fix that. You're, you're blind. You, you don't understand this and that. And in a way that actually only adds heat and, and no light. Um, and so um, and so the rabbis teach, of course, there is a machlok, a conflicting view here. But, the, but the, one of the views is that um, we should only do that where there's really love in place and the person truly can hear it. And one view says um, that, um, that that is possible. Uh, that is possible today. Uh, another view is that that's not possible today. And a third view is that we should say it even if it's not, um, if it's not going to be received out of principle. So, so thank you for sharing that. And I think this whole notion today of like, yeah, being brutally honest as if that's a virtue um, is, really, is really problematic. It's really problematic. I mean, I do think we build trust when people share sensitive things that they, they feel like when you do this, it really hurts me or it bothers me. Right. But that's very different, right. Using, as we often say, using I language rather, rather than you language. Here's how I feel when you say that rather than you're mean, right. Or you don't speak nicely. Right? I feel hurt when you say that. Right. And so that, that that's kind of the easiest uh, relational advice. Okay. Rabbi Lerner. And then I see, uh, then I see Nick. Is your hand up there, Rabbi? I got it. Um, in terms of behavior modification, what you pointed out, and I think what we often forget is positive reinforcement is constantly much more effective than punishment or negativism. It just doesn't work, and it doesn't last. Yep. But positive works even in slow steps, baby yep. steps, and if it's heavy from a very important person, even more so. Yes, thank you for that. And now let me add one other thing that I've studied, and you tell me if you have a different understanding. It's that we don't, we should not say general positive reinforcements. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the, the yeah. positive reinforcement should be connected to a specific behavior or pattern. You don't just say, oh, you're great. Oh, I love you. Like, you're wonderful. Say, oh, you, you are so great at what you did when you did X, Y, and Z. And I love how you said X, Y, and Z, right? We should, with children in particular, connect it to, um, now there is a conflicting argument. The, uh, the conflicting suggestion is that it should never be connected to behaviors, but to being, 
We don't want to praise a child for something they do because that implies they're only loved if they do that. But we want to we want to praise them for their essence, for their being, in a sense, it's something they can't lose. And so they don't feel like I'm only loved if I continue to do X, Y, and Z. So I think about this. My five-year-old daughter comes home with a kindness sticker. Do I say, oh, you're wonderful. I'm so proud of you because you got the kindness sticker. Or do I say, I, I love you. You're so wonderful because you're kind nature, your kind nature. And so that's something for us to think about. How do we praise others? How do we give positive reinforcements? When is it specific? When is it general? When is it about being? When is it about doing? Yes, Rabbi. And, and sometimes... It pays to ask your five-year-old daughter, what did you do or yes, say exactly. yes. that you got the sticker? Yes. And if she can identify it, right. now you have a one-to-one -one relationship. Yes, yes. And unfortunately, sometimes schools um, promote the kind of behavior that we wouldn't think as the highest form. What do they want her to be? A good little girl who's quiet. Oh, everyone, else, everyone else was loud and you were a good little girl sitting there quiet. Or what did you do? You cleaned up the room when no one else did, right? Well, the other, the other part of that is like Tochacha. I am convinced it's much more effective with students to say, would you mind waiting after class for a second? And then point out, you did this so wonderfully. I don't know whether you realize the other kids appreciated it. And at that point, you've got, you got wins. Awesome. So I'm sorry. I know we have more hands up. We got to conclude. But next week, we're going to look at via Haftalarecha You should love your fellow as yourself. Love your fellow as yourself. You're all so wonderful. You're all so great and terrific. Whether you did nothing or did great things today, you're just so wonderful. Just kidding. Just kidding. But thank you for being here. <laughs> no, seriously, your questions and thoughts are also thoughtful and wonderful. And even those of you who share a lot. They're wonderful. And those of you who sometimes don't share your presence and your listening means a lot. And, um, and those of you go back and forth to sharing and it's all wonderful. So really thank you for being here and, um, and lifting up each other in this pursuit of kindness together. Have a, have a wonderful Cold day. Too. God bless. Call to God bless. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.